1977, one small town in Ohio became the target of the wrath of an anonymous letter writer. The citizens of Circleville, Ohio, began to receive letters, and not just a few trickling into their mailboxes here and there, but thousands of them over decades. This unknown fury made some pretty awful accusations about Circleville, but its residents were involved in terrible things corruption, embezzlement, domestic violence, affairs, and even murder. Letter after letter, year after year, this anonymous author was relentless. But were they just writing fiction? Or did they somehow have access to some of the most private details from people's lives? Were the terrible things they were writing about their neighbors, their friends, their family, really true? Who was the author, and what did they want from this one small town? What would it take to make them stop, or would they? How far was the Circleville letter writer willing to go? Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when asked about Don't knowing him. Don't lie when asked about knowing him. I know where you live and have been I know observing where you live your house. And have been observing your house. I know where you live and have been observing your house and know you have children. No joke. Please take it serious. This is no joke. Everyone concerned has been notified. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Everyone concerned has been notified. And everything will be over soon. And everything will be over soon. This season of Whatever Remains, we untangle a decade's worth of police records, hundreds of pages of court transcripts and public records, crime scene reports, and reread the letters themselves, some not made public in decades, and we try and track their origin. We'll learn more about the lives of the people of Circleville that lived under the shadow for years and how these letters wore at this community. And we talk to law enforcement and to one private investigator who still works to try and solve this ongoing mystery. We'll try to figure out who is behind the Circleville letters, the anonymous writer with a grudge to bear on a small town, and what really could have been their reason to flood Circleville with so much malice. Join us in the search on Twitter at WhateverRemains or online at WhateverRemainsPodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Remember, what goes around comes around. Welcome to Circleville. And so, Marie, it's come to this. Ah, oh, not this. It's Anything to this. but this. So, hmm. dear listeners, this episode, mm-hmm. we had a Twitter it's poll. It's what it's come to. It's what it's, it's, come, what to. it's come to. We mm-hmm. had a Twitter poll on Twitter. Well, that was our first That was our first mistake. Our first, it was our first Twitter poll, too. <laughs> and so, we asked. Could be the uh, last. Just we asked if people, what people thought this episode should be called. Oh, God, what it should be called. And people said that it should be called Dogs with Jobs, which is a great name. So the other options, we had 45 votes, which was pretty damn good, if I, if I do say so myself. That's really impressive. Yeah. The, other, 
The other options were the other options were Spooky Valley Ranch. Nice. Nice. Yeah, thank you. Nice. More like Boarwalker. Uh Dogs with Jobs, which took it with forty percent. Mm-hmm. And then finally UFO proof. Oh, wait, let me, I'm going to guess the one that you would have voted for, which is more like Boar Walker. I didn't vote for any of them because it was my own poll, Marie. I know, but like the one that you were secretly pulling for, more like Boar Walker. Uh, well, the one, yeah, you know, the problem is with episode titles like this, I always try to make them kind mm-hmm. of funny. And then people like, we don't even say that, like, we don't say the title or, you know what I mean? Like we, it's just in the title of the that download the episode. So I'm hoping I'll get like. I'm hoping that I will get out of people who read the title kind of that, like, you don't really laugh when you sort of blow air out of your nose. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Is that what we're going for? That's my goal, really. Sort of a, a blowhole kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. Like a whale or, a, okay. Yeah, cool, cool, yeah, cool, cool, kind cool, of a, cool, you know, cool. yeah. Yeah, and, right, um, sort of more, not, not an ironic, snidey laugh. No, 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 just, like just a genuine, kind of a, yeah, like, but not a chuckle. We're not chuckling. We're not. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. We're appreciating it, but we're not chuckling. Exactly. It's a fine line, man. It's a fine line. Dogs with jobs is pretty good. Actually with this one though, the ranch, the ranch's story is so overblown <sighs> and it's so, it's such a small, like it's such a, to me, it is the least interesting thing Piccolo does in this period of time. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah that, I can see it. You know, it's kind of, you know, I almost, I wanted to call the episode, um, I wanted to call the episode something like spooky action at a almost astronomical distance just because nothing happens on the ranch the entire time that they're there practically. And when it does happen to them, it doesn't happen to them. It happens to the people that they like, <laughs> The people who sold them this ranch for a bunch of money and told them it was spooky. Um, and not even a bunch of money, actually. The Shermans got screwed, but... Well, I mean, they must have wanted to get rid of it, though, too. I mean... I'm sure honestly, they did, but still, ways, that's a significant cut. Anyways, whatever. We're getting into this. I would agree. I would agree. Dogs with Jobs, because the other good thing is it works on many levels. It does. Dogs with Jobs. It could be It could be the. Um, it could be the. the. Uh, the wolves or whatever dressed up in people's clothing, right? Yeah. It's a dog with job. Yeah, it's a dog with a job. Spooking people. It's a dog with a job. Well, I, he's a day trader, man. No, 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 no. He was just on his way somewhere, and he, he inadvertently spooked. But you don't know, man. I mean, he could have been, like uh, again, like real estate agent. Right. Or or it's a banana ranch. Republic. It's I don't a know. ranch. So dogs huh. often are ranch dogs. Well, yes, yes. They do work there. But again, as we have found out, Skinwalker Ranch. This is the one thing. This is like the only thing that I've really retained from this very short period, too. There's like maybe two stories that kind of stuck with me. Dogs don't fare well. No. Dogs don't fare well very well. No, you know? dogs like, don't do great. Don't, don't, dogs don't do too well doing their job on, on this type of a ranch. Which is kind of BS if you ask me. And again, it's why I feel like orbs are kind of the jerks. Orbs are kind of the a-holes of the uh, paranormal you know, activity world there. Mm-hmm. Orbs. Mm-hmm. 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 Dog who barks, prepare to get snarked. Snarked, yeah. Or just, yeah. That should it's have been like, the title. All right. Jake, roll the tape. <laughs> Bark and get snarked. Nice. <laughs> 
tried my best, Marie. No, no, it's not bad. I think dogs. I think dogs who work are actually zarked, zarked, splattered. What are you being for Halloween this year? Me? Mm-hmm. Drunk. <laughs> what are you? What are you being for Halloween well, this what, year? What do you mean? That's like that's like that's like uh, every other like every other Tuesday. Um, yeah, but I'm gonna wear my uh, I'm gonna wear my shirt with a jack o' lantern face on. Are you <laughs> so that's every other. That's like <laughs> what, once a month. Then like every like other Friday. Even, yeah, essentially, Friday. it is one of my uh, favorite shirts by far. It, totally, it is. Um, I am going to be social services from Wes Anderson's movie uh, Moonlight Kingdom. Ooh, that's cool. Oh, I know. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I have it left over. I might, I might try and get that out to go, uh, to go trick or treating, and just have people ask me who I am, so I can nice. be a total humanities major, a whole film person, and be like, "Well, let me tell you who I am." <laughs> right, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Rosebud. I'm that person. All right. It's really <laughs> so. I'm that person. Um, I'm that person. Sorry, okay. sorry, dear listeners. I'm all right. Person. So, last episode mm. we talked about Bigelow gets together this team of people. And they Justice League, the Justice League, and they have very colorful backgrounds, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. This group of people that comes together, because the thing is, too, there are. There are people who kind of flit in and out of this story as well. Mm-hmm. So like Pudoff has a buddy, Eric Davis, who is also kind of involved in this. But he's mm-hmm. also like one of the only people that's been involved who will talk about it a lot, which kind of makes yeah. him seem like maybe he wasn't that involved, but he wants you to think he was. It's a it's a little hard to gauge. The yeah. thing, yeah, the thing about yeah. the thing about the ranch, and the thing about Bigelow's time, essentially from kind of, I, I mean, I don't know, really his time in this field in general. But especially from what will happen with MUFON moving forward, and we're going to get into what happens with MUFON, is he will really greatly shun public attention. And that's something that's been the case kind of like his entire life in some ways, it it at least seems like. But Mm -hmm. he will be especially careful in the UFO community to play his cards close to the best. And so everyone who works on the ranch uh, signs a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. And the few people that have come out or come forward and kind of broken, they would say they haven't broken the non-disclosure agreements. But those people that have come forward and now um, have spoken about being on the ranch and their time there and everything else are those people who no longer work there and who um, – and frankly who – feel like because this Bigelow team has dissolved that they're no longer held together by this NDA. And occasionally, occasionally we'll have documents that'll come out that will, that'll shed some light on how the NIDS team itself operated. But primarily the most of the information we get about what actually happened on Skinwalker Ranch during this period comes from either hunt for the Skinwalker. So it's Mm -hmm. colored by the memories of, the memories and, frankly, um, biases of George Knapp and Colm Kelleher, mm-hmm. who continued to work with Bigelow after the fact, 
or it comes from these weird documents that kind of leak that are almost too wacky to be believed. And just really quick about NDAs and something like this. It's like, okay, so let's say you, you, you're you on the branch, you sign an NDA, you see something really crazy, you come out and you say something about it. Uh, or you were like reported out, like, what is Bigelow going to do? Is he going to take legal action against you? Because then that is basically outing himself, right? He's he's basically saying, yes, this this is big enough that I am going to go after you legally, well, it's sort of stop the, you from talking, which which makes more of a big deal out of it than if you don't. Yeah, it's actually part right. of it's part of the larger question that's floating around right now in the UFO world of. Well, if Luis Elizondo is telling the truth, why hasn't the government come out and quieted him? And the argument, I think, is very similar to what you're saying, Marie. It just that just adds fuel to the fire. Well, yeah, it's sort of it almost nullifies the need for an NDA. Like there's a lot, you know, culturally right now, it's sort of this watershed moment around the idea of NDAs and when do you, when do you use them? When are they appropriate? When are they sort of muzzles on free speech and whistleblowers? Um, But I mean, an NDA really is the idea that in a more corporate environment that you're not going to take what you know and shop it around elsewhere. It's right. not so much or you, that you see something that is intellectual property and you are not going to disclose it to another company. Well, in but some ways, yeah, in some ways, the NDAs that Bigelow has these people sign, it's. There's only one there's only one person paying people to s- investigate spooky ranches, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so if that's your line of work and you you tick that guy off, you're probably out of a job well, unless you get the book deal. Yeah, exactly. Unless you get the book deal, unless you can right. build up enough media attention that you yourself can turn this into kind of a cottage industry, you know, but look, yeah. look at what happened to Bob Lazar. You know, it took him how many years to kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know, weasel his way back into the good graces of some of the people in Bigelow's orbit to get another mm-hmm. bite at the apple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I mean, if you have something that's really that huge that you're going to break an NDA for, then you're going to like, then it should be warranted that it's going to, that it would, that would be the reason you would do it. Right. It's not just, you know, sort of a afterthought. Like you went out and you had too much drink and you're talking at a bar and you break an NDA. No, it's like, it would be a big deal. Anyways, I just think it's sort of interesting. It is. No, it is. It is very interesting. And in this, in this situation, I think like what you're saying or hinting at Marie, the NDA Mm -hmm. is a more, it's almost more of a powerful tool as like a corporate um, gag. It is a way, it is a way almost for mm. Bigelow to be able to say, I no longer will pay you. Right. You right. know, as opposed right. to like an actual legal recourse kind of thing. Right. It's sort of more of a, an, a threat than yes. anything else. Yes. So uh, Bigelow will found what comes to be known as NIDS around 1995. And the team again were those people that we talked about before. Their initial mandate, and so you can still find the NIDS website, nidsci.org, on the Wayback Machine. Mm-hmm. But so their initial kind of mission statement. Now, let's just step back a moment here. The NIDSci website appears to have been founded in like 2001. So it's not, it doesn't go all the way back to the beginning. You know, but, but the beginning was 95. So what were we going to see? Mm-hmm. You know, star wipes and whatever. Like, whatever. It's fine. But So cool. <clears throat> anyways. This is on their kind of about us section. So, quote, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, NIDS, 
is a privately funded research organization. It focuses on scientific exploration that emphasizes emerging, novel, and sometimes unconventional observations and theories. In its programs, NIDS rigorously employs accepted scientific methods and maintains the highest ethical and quality standards. The Institute concentrates on exploring fundamental research on issues concerning the nature and evolution of life and consciousness in the universe and their modes of interaction. We are specifically interested in issues related to evidence for survival of consciousness beyond death and aerial phenomenology and related topics. A world-class science advisory board is assisting in designating and reviewing specific projects. Dissemination of the products of NIDS research will only occur once peer review has been accomplished. The means of dissemination of this information is through publication in scientific journals, our website, or other appropriate media accepted by the science community, end quote. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. Hmm. None of that last part about scientific review ever happens. I was going to say, the peer, like all of your peer reviews, they're under NDA as well. So nobody's re- nobody's reviewing anything. No, no. None of the peer review happens. And that's, and that's actually what often happens in UFO circles or in these weird circles like this is, like, let, let, let's take Pudoff, right? Pudoff's research field, he is famous in, in, in modern kind of patent law for having a patent case that went kind of ping-ponging back and forth between Pudoff and the U.S. Patent Office, where finally the Patent Office just kind of threw up their arms and were like, we can't tell if this is science, so we're just going to give you the damn patent. Like, we, can't, we can't find anyone to review this because you're uh, the only person doing this kind of research in your field. You've courted the market. Right, and since you're going to fight us on this kind of declaration that this is not scientifically valid... We're just going to let you have this one, you know, and if you de- if you do design kind of a Mad Hatter-esque ESP hat thing that you're designing, then great, you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> we'll see you at the launch party. So the problem with this, so the, the NID starts off, but, but to be fair, at the very beginning, they actually start off kind of with a bang mm-hmm. because the first things that they come to with the table are those surveys, the statistical analysis of, um, of, of UFO sightings, of the public's perception of UFOs, of religious leaders' perceptions of the UFO question, when they first come onto the scene, they're bringing with them some of the actual statistical work that Bigelow and Alexander kind of, you know, Bigelow funded and Alexander kind of spearheaded. So they actually come into this thing with something approaching scientific validity. Yes. Which is really cool. And it's public. Yes. And it's yeah. made public. It's on their website. Yeah. So yeah. here's the problem, though. The people on this, the way that they kind of, the way that this is often talked about in podcasts and things is people will say, well, look, NIDS had all these great scientists on the board. Doesn't that mean that whatever they find is going to be great? No. The people on the scientific advisory board hardly went to the ranch at all. They would occasion, and we know this from letters that have recent that have that have leaked since the time period, and mm-hmm. also from the diaries of Jacques Vallée and interviews that others have got, you know given. The scientific advisory board primarily was meant to kind of be like a faraway board. They met occasionally in person, um, but they kind of communicated with each other and threw ideas around and helped develop each other's opinions or whatever. But ultimately. There was really never any data for them to analyze from the ranch. The ra- you know, 
the the main theme of Hunt for the Skinwalker is again these you know werewolves with pants or whatever are continuously outwitting the Nids team. It's khakis. So there's never khakis. there's never anything to analyze ultimately. No. And on yes. top of that, on top of that yes. too, besides the scientific advisory board really never being on the ranch, um, you also have the fact that the the people that are on the ranch doing this kind of work are kind of like hired help. They're they're ranch hands and things. And so we know that from a different a, a couple of different places. However, um, this is actually from the NIDS again, the NIDS website, so from their FAQ question. Does NIDS employ field investigators? Answer, yes. NIDS does employ full-time investigators. However, NIDS only hires investigators with prior experience in law enforcement and forensics. These investigators primarily operate out of the NIDS headquarters in Las Vegas. Should NIDS have a field investigator position open, it will be announced on our employment opportunities page. Oh, that would have been a good, like a good summer job. And they actually have, like, they, they had at the time, like, on the Wayback Machine, you can occasionally see job postings. So, at, so this point, at this point, at this point, in kind of the first point in 2001, they were looking for a veterinarian to do analysis of cattle mm-hmm. mutilations. And they were mm-hmm. looking for mm-hmm. um, a, a former FBI investigator of some kind. Now, part of the reason that we know about kind of how the Scientific Advisory Board operated um, was – the letters to Edgar Mitchell from Bigelow on NIDS on NIDS letterhead have been have been put out there. Uh, they've made their way to the internet. So hmm. mm-hmm. um, this is just again another quote from this, right? So uh, it says, "Dear Doctor Mitchell, since a lot has happened in the past few weeks, I thought I would take this opportunity to give you a brief update and provide information about the next meeting. You will remember that it is scheduled for the evening of May thirty first." And the entire day of Saturday, June 1st. As usual, we would appreciate it if you would make your travel reservations as soon as possible. Again, the travel agency number is blank. Um, and just for some context, this is sent on May 13th. At the upcoming in, in of 96, at the upcoming meeting, I will discuss some organizational changes that are occurring on the consciousness side of NIDS. To support our research, I have facilitated a change in direction for the Consciousness Research Lab, CRL, and directed them to concentrate on survival of consciousness issues. The CRL status in UNLV provides an important adjunct to our research capabilities. Um, currently, we are working mm-hmm. out the details, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting stuff. Now, what's actually kind of interesting, too, in this is um, in this same letter, he actually mentions a piece of uh, UFO debris that they think they've actually collected mm-hmm. um, that uh, – they believe they, they got tested Lockheed Martin, supposedly, mm-hmm. um, which many people believe might be one of the pieces of material uh, that To the Stars Academy now has. Um, but anyways, something interesting to just keep in the back of your head. So we know from these letters and from Valet's kind of diaries and things that really um, this team has just kind of been, you know, the, the the scientific advisory board meets relatively regularly, however, uh, not all that frequently. Certainly not that they're on the ranch consistently. They're also bringing in speakers occasionally. 
And so those speakers are coming in and giving talks. And again, the team is kind of thinking about them and whatever. So really, in some ways, NIDS is more of a uh, again, if you're listening to that, the interview with MJ Benias, we just posted, it's more of this kind of invisible college, almost like a an academic. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. An academic center yeah. of research for this. Yeah. It's like a master class. So it's it's something of a reading club in some ways. But so so that being said, the main people in the main people in NIDS who do appear to have been on the ranch regularly appear to have been Colm Kelleher, Hal Pudoff, John Alexander, and then Eric Davis. Those appear to be the main people who were on the ranch, at least semi frequently, doing mm-hmm. analysis and tests and whatever. But at the same time, they had field investigators also there pretty regularly. The work that NIDS did was basically broken up into two general camps, um, or not a two general camps, into a couple of general camps. The main things that NIDS appears to have been researching is cattle mutilations, um, consciousness studies, UFO propulsion, but that's kind of almost more like, I don't know, UFO sightings, really? Mm-hmm. Um, st- the statistical analysis of UFOs and related phenomena abductions and uh, crash research like crash ships and of course spooky ranches in general yes yeah so um a lot of the people that are on the ranch though we we just again like we don't know about them right but what we have been able to find out in recent years are some interesting things about and and listen that I don't know. Being able to not find who is working on the ranch to me is, I don't know. Marie, do you think that's a big deal? I think if there was someone of note, they would have said something. I mean, again, like if there was something worth finding that would have come out, they would have, they would have driven more of the narrative than they had. I mean, I think that like you were saying, the narrative is driven by maybe three or four main people that have pretty cohesive stories about what happened. Yeah. It would be interesting. I think it would be fascinating to hear from just the general ranch hands about what their experience was and how much of it jives with what is much more put out there in in books and documentaries and websites. Hmm. Hmm. Personally, I, I if 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 we had access to someone who worked on the mm-hmm. ranch, I would have a lot mm-hmm. of questions for them. Like I I know what I would ask them. You know, what would you ask them? I well. I would ask that you could put me on the spot. Never said I knew it. I would. I would ask them. Number one, did you follow a rigid protocol? Uh, that's the first thing you'd ask. Yeah, like was uh, or were there controls in place, or did you just see spooky stuff did sometimes? You, did you just see spooky in? stuff? No, I don't think ask? that's. I honestly what? don't think that's as important. I think oh. what's important is. I actually think that the most important well, thing would be: yeah. were they doing science? You know. Oh well, yeah. Because yeah. a lot of well, the reports I mean, we have, yeah. and again, we don't have a lot of reports from the time that NIDS was there, but the reports right. from later on, it makes it sound like these people were just paid to kind of sit on their butts. Well, you know, I think that there might not have stuff. been enough. Yeah. Th- th- when something spooky happens, it's like, I think that you're just, it's so few and far between, or could be so few, few and far between that to actually try and scientifically, you know, categorize it or understand it or get it into some sort of. Uh, I don't know, any kind of a protocol is not going to, it wouldn't be the first thing off the top of your mind. I mean, again, and like the people that are actually doing this, what's the turnover? That's, we only know of these people. Mm. We only know of the ones that are writing the books that have this consistent narrative, but 
you don't really, or even even the owners or the ex-owners that are still kind of there just trying to trying to maintain their cattle and trying to keep their life, you know, their livelihood going. But all of all of the anything that would have been the support that would have been the majority of the work that was occurring, you have no idea. To mm-hmm. your point. Which I think is interesting because it's like it's like, yeah, it's like all this sort of top line stuff, but people that did the real work, no idea. Yeah, it's like trying to figure out how how a seven eleven operates by talking to the CEO of seven eleven. Yes, that guy or, does not yes. know. Yes, he does or not he, he or, the, he or yeah, she does to the not meth know. Head that's wandering around in the parking lot, right? I <laughs> right. mean, that's basically that guy, what it is. Yeah. That guy <laughs> has a better take on how the Seven Eleven gets run. You don't know, right? I mean, it's he's like it just shows up and it's amazing, and look, there's Slurpees, and you're like, okay, so that's that Skinwalker, right? Like it just shows up and. There's a wolf and oh my God, but it's like, you have no idea. Like, do they have to, you know, all of the stuff that keeps the thing operational. We have zero idea about it. <laughs> so <laughs> during this time period. So, okay. Nid starts in 95. Brewing around this time yeah. period is this idea in the UFO community about what are known are you as UFO hotspots. Mm-hmm. The UFO community also calls these kind of like UFO flaps. Another term for these, if you want to take the broader view of all this kind of spookiness, mm-hmm. is a hellhole. Sorry, well, kind of, kind of like a hellhole or a vortex or you know an area of flap? high consciousness chakra Why or whatever. Flap? I don't know. High flap. consciousness chakra? Did you just hit me with chakra? I did. You know, I think vortex. Vortex is wow. kind of the vortex is kind of the standard term, I guess, for people. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But no, UFO flap is used a lot of the time, actually, in the UFO subculture. Okay. Like okay. many things about the UFO subculture, it seems to be a holdover from the 40s and 50s. Um, but anyways, so a flap, like an area that has a UFO flap or areas where it's a hard definition. It's not really a real definition of any sort. But basically, you can think of areas where UFO sightings have a high concentration mm-hmm. or okay. where you know, where you would expect to see them. So for instance, a very famous one is around Mount, Mount Shasta, right? It's a very mm, famous yes. kind of vortex area. Another famous one is right off of the coast of uh, California. Um, the, uh, what's it? The area where supposedly there's like an alien base under the water or something. Oh, you know? yes. Um, that Yes, Rob will... Lowe. Rob Lowe went to go see Yes, it. Rob Lowe went Malibu, there. Malibu, right? It was Malibu, I think it? it was Malibu, something like that. <sighs> Um, you know, uh, so there, there, underwater base. There are there are other ones around there too, and so one of them, one of the most famous ones, um, or I guess I, almost infamous ones, is in the Uintah Basin in Utah, mm-hmm. in an area that is known as it's known for a lot of spooky stuff. It's not just known for UFOs, but this is one of a number of hotspots that appear to have been purchased by Robert Bigelow. Mm-hmm. Now here's the thing. Spooky ranches. File under Spooky Ranch. File is under Spooky Ranch. There is, of course, the famous Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. But there is also another ranch owned by Bigelow's company called the Mount Wilson Ranch. Mm-hmm. This one is much less well known. And it was purchased supposedly as a about the same time that, that Skinwalker was purchased around 96. The Mount Wilson Ranch was 
supposedly purchased as something of a control. And so it makes sense for his test. And it makes sense then that Bigelow was probably buying other properties as well. Maybe some as uh, negative controls, right? Places that you don't expect to see stuff. Mm -hmm. However, we know that the Mount Wilson Ranch was purchased as a positive control. We know this because, uh, well, first off, the the legal documents show that Bigelow owns it. But also because uh, Knapp, George Knapp, uh, confirmed this um, on Twitter. He said, quote, it was a poltergeist. It was a positive control. Mount Wilson was purchased by Bigelow because it had a long history of both poltergeist haunting witness reports and UFO sightings on the property and in the general area, similar to Skinwalker, though not the same range of reported phenomena, end quote. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. So Bigelow is buying. That's two ranches we know of. Right. We have reason to suspect that there are others. We have we sued. We have strong reason to suspect that there are others, and we're going to discuss that yes. in the conclusion of this series. Yeah, and I think so. I think we should. We're go- we'll definitely get into the details on it. But I mean, again, if you just look at who Bigelow is, and you apply the same logic to something like acquiring, like he 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 is a collector. He acquires things. He doesn't leave anything up to chance like he's not going to just take one thing or find one thing right he's going to go and he's going to um corner the market on everything it's what he did in his business right it was sort of his his general philosophy so why wouldn't he apply that to um sequestering any kind of phenomenon or any kind of um any kind of physical artifact from that could be otherworldly, right? Of course, he's yeah. going to get that and sequester that and, and hide it someplace. But the same thing with actual property. That's what you do is you buy as much of it, even if you're wrong, right? Even if it's not right or it's whatever. It's like he's got a lot of money. He has a lot of ability to to uh, buy real estate and a lot of arms to buy real estate within his corporation. Why wouldn't you do that? That's par for the course for him, I would assume. You can always offload land. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have so much money that you can withstand the kind of ebbs and flows of the market. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the stuff's expensive. Either. No. Like spooky ranches are not going for a lot. Which is, yeah. it's, a good, it's a good market to corner. Um, so it It's a buyer's market. Always. Always. Spooky so ranches. Buyer's market. The guy buys these spooky ranches. The most famous one is Skinwalker. Why this one becomes really like the center of testing or why this one becomes, I don't know why they choose. Maybe it's just because it's close, I guess. But, you know, it's close to to Las Vegas. It's close enough, much closer than the other one. See, um, I would still argue that it's an assumption, though, because it's it known. It's well, known. Like, that's the only one we know of. That see, well, here's the thing. like that. Mount, the Mount Wilson Ranch 
has been mm-hmm. was known historically for being haunted. Do you know what I mean? Like it was right. this that already had a legend about it. Skinwalker Ranch was almost like a fresh slate. It was it was not known to be haunted. Like the area was known to be a hot spot and whatever. But mm-hmm. this particular ranch this was like the perfect storm. It was a confluence of a bunch of different things all together. So that's I almost wonder if that's why this ranch became the test site and not say Mount Wilson or any of his other properties. Oh, see, I would still argue it's because it's the only one people are talking about. So it naturally becomes that because it has a book written about it. It's 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 yeah, the one right, that was disclosed. So, well, it's like, so what if all of them were like that? That's what we just oh, don't know. I see what you're saying. But that's you true. just don't know that's because true. That's true. this is the one that this was the one that went public for whatever reason. And I'm not saying that there's a bunch of Skinwalker Ranch out there, but are you know hidden or whatever. But it, logically, it's like well, history's ri- written by. You know, or the the saying history is written by the winners, right? But like that's like the same thing. It's like it's this is the one that you hear the most about, so you naturally assume that it is the one that was special. But it might not be. It might just be the one that got talked about. Somebody leaked it, and that was the one that just naturally now is in the public eye. Could be. It could very. You know, actually, that's an interesting thing. It's kook theory. That's a very good kook theory. But this is all, true. Well, it's also right? this is this is also the only ranch again. I think because this is the ranch that people have been paying attention to. Yeah. The Mount Wilson, the Mount Wilson um, ranch, is known of out there. I mean, mm-hmm. we found it right, mm-hmm. and this other place is also not impossible to find. We these other places aren't impossible to find by any, any means. We found them again. It's just a matter of digging and really, I think. I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that these are the ones that are being talked about mostly, and I wonder, like you, yeah. like you're hinting at, is Skinwalker just known because the cat's already out of the bag? But well, and Skinwalker, when was Skinwalker really active? "Quote unquote" active nineties. That's true. It's 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 twenty twenty. All this stuff is old now. I mean, basically anything he owns at this point, he's already exhausted. Mm. He's already he's had he's had decades to. To kind of strip mine whatever, if there is something veritas of interest, he has it. Mm. It's something else now. It's we true. don't know about. All right. Yep. Sorry. So, no, it's true. It's Buzz completely killer, true. but true. So, Skinwalker Ranch. Here's the thing. There are other shows that do a tremendous job on Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. And we're not going to retread that ground. No, because it's not as interesting to us as all the Bigelow stuff. There's a lot of other stuff around the ranch that we're going to talk about here that you will not yeah. you will have not heard before. Um, and okay. there's stuff that we're going to find on Bigelow that you're not going to have heard before either, because he has not been the focus of these stories. The focus of the stories have been, again, the dogs with jobs. So if you want a really good episode or a good series on Skinwalker, check out. Astonishing Legends. They yes. did a great job. They did a really, really yes. great job. Uh, last podcast also did a series on Skinwalker. Uh, just, I mean, almost every show has done an episode on Skinwalker. Yes, Forrest and Scott scared themselves silly. With oh it. my it god, good. it's like it good. it's like it's watching good. again. It's like watching a dog fart itself awake. They <laughs> get so afraid. So, the history of Skinwalker Ranch. One thing that's never mentioned in these stories is so. Let's start from, I guess, kind of the baseline. What is, for those that don't know what Skinwalker Ranch is, in 1996, the Deseret News publishes a story about 
And the Deseret News is kind of the Salt Lake City main newspaper, one of the main newspapers mm-hmm. in Salt Lake City. They publish a story about a, a ranch owner whose family has had to give up on their property because of their their herd of prize cattle is being mutilated in the night. Their dogs are being killed. Their home mm-hmm. is being terrorized. And they don't know what's doing it. They don't understand what's doing it. But they've had these kind of sightings of werewolf-like creatures, of lights in the sky, of, of, of physical craft, of orbs, of people in the distance appearing and disappearing and seeming to merge into animals and come back. They're, this family's just not having a great time on the ranch. Who wrote that article? Do you know? The Deseret News article? Yeah. I have it in my notes here, and it's going to okay. be in the it's going to be in the show notes, too. Okay. Um, Van Eyck? Here, here we go. So, uh, oh, this is actually about after they bought it. This one's by Leslie Whiting for the Deseret Morning mm-hmm. News, but this is Mysteries of UFO Ranch in Spotlight. There is an earlier one, though, about the original, the original one um, that I have someplace here mm-hmm. in the back of wherever, but... Um, anyways, we'll have the post. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll have it. Yeah. uh, Yes. We will. We will definitely have it in the post. Right. So, um, this story, I guess starts with that Deseret news article. And then Bigelow hears about this ranch decides to kind of purchase it. And he purchases the ranch for $200,000. With the ag- nothing with the agreement to the owners that they can stay on the ranch. They can if they want to stay, they can stay. They can leave their cattle on the ranch to graze and everything else. Mm-hmm. But he wants to be able to study what's happening on the ranch. And so the Shermans, the family that owns the ranch. Decide. Fine, we'll let that happen. But I but we want to be there. We want to be there to find out what's going on here, too. Yeah, and just to watch their cattle. I mean, like, that's a huge investment for a small business, right? It's like you sink all your money into something. It's not what you expected for whatever reason. I mean, that's a massive investment to try and move and do something different. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they decide that they're going to do that, right? Um, Here we go. So this is like. So here's the original, by the way, here's the original story. The original story was called Frequent Flyers uh, by Zach Van Eyck, staff writer yes. of the Deseret News, June yeah. 30th, 96. Um, we should dig into him more, too. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this talks about Terry and Gwen Sherman. Um, it's this actually a quote here. Terry and Gwen Sherman wish some of the teeming intergalactic life would find somewhere else to hang out. For more than a year now, the Sherman's 480-acre ranch just south of Fourth Duchesne in Uintah County has been a hotbed for UFOs and bizarre paranormal activity. Weirdness that even the Shermans, who've witnessed the strange happenings with their own eyes and video camera, have trouble accepting as reality. The Shermans, their teenage son and 10-year-old daughter, have seen three specific types of UFOs repeatedly during the past 15 months. A small box-like craft with a white light a 40-foot-long object in a huge ship the size of several football fields. They've seen one craft emit a wavy red ray or light beam as it flies around. They've seen other airborne lights, some of which have emerged from orange circular doorways 
that seemed to appear in midair. They videotaped two of the sightings. So, yeah, not great. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so, the, and that's kind of the story of how the ranch comes into the spotlight. But the area itself has been considered weird by the inhabitants for a hundred years mm-hmm. at that point. Part of the overall story of Skinwalker Ranch, and of course, it, it I mean, it should be obvious with the name like Skinwalker, is the relation of this land and this area and this mythology to native peoples that lived in the area. Yes. The problem with that is that there is very little evidence to support the idea that the Skinwalker story ever really existed in any serious way outside of like, so we, we know there appears to be agreement that Navajo, the Navajo people have a story like a kind of Skinwalker. Yeah. And of course, every culture has something like a werewolf or a, a vampire or whatever. These people, these creatures that can, these, these evil malevolent beings that can turn into or control the more vicious animals out there. Yes. But the idea of a skinwalker as it exists in a skinwalker ranch story appears to be a, appears to be a mixing of both some maybe traditional esque stories from native peoples seen through the lens of settlers in a scary new area. Yeah. I think plus then the UFO angle on top of it. And I think the idea of Skinwalker Ranch is really almost is in some ways a trope, right? Because if you didn't have that, what what kind of nomenclature could you give this ranch that would make it sort of situational? In some ways, you know what I mean? It's like you have these stories, all these stories seem to add up to be this trope of an identity that isn't even is sort of, again, just something that is almost uh, could be really superficial at best and just sort of a total false, you know, a total false, a total false narrative at worst. Yeah, that is that is sort of, again, this idea of, you know, these these malevolent beings that are part of this other culture and they are afflicting your ranch and you're now giving them sort of this identity. And this identity is now part of this bigger, huge narrative that has, that is, that is blown up into, up into the story of Skinwalker Ranch. But how much of that is actually anything that is true or about an indigenous group of people that, that lived there? Probably not a lot. Yeah. And also or it's my, it's not even really relative in some ways. I would argue like a werewolf wearing khakis and a button down has more to do with post-colonial culture and somebody seeing that and being like, yeah, that's like, and they're out there smoking a menthol and maybe having like what, like they're out there smoking a menthol and having a Pabst Blue Ribbon or something is much more to do with sort of our perception of reality than any other, than any other thing. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird, um, it seems like with a lot of kind of ghost yeah. stories and things yeah. that it's 
if you can say, oh, it's on a, it's on a burial ground or it's, you know, Nim that is just a ground. very, it's yes. a very powerful trope. And I, I do think yeah. that that's definitely something at the same time too. I, I don't want, I don't want us to, I don't want people hearing the story to forget that this is, this is an area that yeah. is like actually plagued yeah. historically with. Yeah. terrible mistreatment of people and yeah. you know yeah. history and wars and everything else so there's there's there is reason to suspect or reason to believe that this area has a long and bloody history like that's true yes. but part of that history is also invariably the history of um you know invariably the history of uh Colonial, colonial people coming people in, taking coming it in. to something yeah. else. Yeah. So, yeah. The initial kind of the the ranch area itself, right? So, 1861 is um, Lincoln creating by executive order a Uintah Valley Reservation, which is on the land that that Skinwalker Ranch sits on. Mm-hmm. 1862, another reservation is created, um, the Uncum Pagre. Uh, and then the 1880s, the Ute tribe is l- relocated to the reservation surrounding uh, the ranch area. Mm-hmm. Right now, a lot of this information there's a really good timeline from SkinwalkerRanch.org put up by Ryan Skinner. So check that out if you're interested in kind of all this nitty gritty history stuff. However, I I would argue that the most important pieces here. So 86, the Uintah Reservation is created, which merges that those other two reservations. And then in 1905, um, homesteaders come onto the reservation <laughs> and start building stuff, and yep. so take some land. Um, yep. So the original homesteaders are John and Emma Myers. They build the first homestead there. It's only a few small buildings. Now, one thing about this that I always kind of think is funnier, or not if not funny, but one aspect of this that I always think is kind of interesting is if you had people moving on to land that, that the government gave you mm-hmm. and you wanted to keep them from moving on to that land. Don't you think a Scooby-Doo esque story of Would like be. haunted, it's haunted. There's it's werewolves. Haunted. It's evil. It's a terror. You know, doesn't that seem, cause you know, People, pe- indigenous peoples telling us this is sacred land. This is a water source we need. This is, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. None of that ever seems to work. The only oh, time we yeah. seem to ever listen and stay off of the damn land is when they're like, it's ghosts there. It's ghosts. Now you'd probably sell tickets for it. But I think what's interesting is like my I, my guess is like the haunting how they would perceive the haunting systemically is it would be the settlers, right? Like yeah. the, the skinwalker is the settler. The skinwalker yeah. is the thing that's coming and displacing their an entire culture. You know, it's like you can't they like actual- sell yourself to, you know, you, I, I think I would love the idea of like that that's what the story you would tell them to keep them off the land, except the story that you're telling is the haunting to the haunter. Well, it's like, yeah, it's they... <laughs> They had a real alien invasion. Oh, it happened. Yes. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's a crazy yes. thing. Yes. All right. Anyways, 
So between 1906 and 1911, there are uh, earthquakes in the area that the local news is like, oh, spooky explosions. So that happens. Um, then in the kind of in the, the period in between then, like 1915, supposedly a guy comes to the ranch dressed in a blue shining tracksuit and is like, give me water, human. And the owner's like, oh, you know, whatever. But there's no we have no corroboration of that. We can't find any evidence for it. Whatever. In the 30s, the ranch becomes held by Kenneth John Myers and Edith Child Myers. They appear to be the descendants of the original family that homesteaded there. Mm-hmm. Every time I read about these people, I thought they were the original owners because evidently there are like just not a lot of names going around in Utah at the time. She's like Emma. Emma or Edith or John or Kenneth John. It's confusing. Anyways, um, 30s, they take over the ranch. They, they change where it is, where the homestead is, I should say. And build it into the kind of the area that will become purchased by the Shermans eventually in the in the 90s. So um, between the 40s and 50s, there are sporadic but regular UFO sightings in the area. This is the time where Junior Hicks is really starting to become interested. Local people are reporting things. There's mass sightings. There's all kinds of interesting mm-hmm. stuff going on. Um, so the UFO flap in the Uintah Basin is really considered to have occurred between um, – the kind of fifties and sixties. And then another one occurs in the late seventies, like 78 around there. So uh, on top of all of this, there are all kinds of other sort of conspiratorial timeline hits, right? So like NASA builds an observatory near the ranch and then shuts it down years later. Mm-hmm. And so that is supposed to be conspiratorial. Like, ah, NASA was there, but it's like, it's in the middle of nowhere. There's no light pollution. Perfect place for an observatory. Yeah, you know, there's there's not that, yeah. you know, that's where I'd put an observatory. It's not yeah. weird or anything else. So um, in 87, the Myers leave the ranch. They just leave it empty. So 87, they leave the ranch. And that is a little strange, right? I mean, like leaving it just empty and not selling it or not caring about it or not staying there. I mean, is it though? Like, I, there's a lot of houses in. I don't know. I, I I travel a lot for work, and I go to a lot of neighborhoods and places that are like, people have houses they just don't fill. You know, I don't know. My aunt and uncle own a house in Pennsylvania that they don't go to. It's like a vacation home, quote unquote. Party at their house? No. Um, I was. I think it depends on why they left it like you know could they not sell it just because of economic conditions yeah, uh, yeah. in I mean, 87 or honestly they, had they a different job they, I they mean, became there's a lot to it. they became the owners in the 30s yeah by the late 80s they are old <laughs> you know what i mean this like, is true this is true they're they in have... their 70s yeah they're in their 70s at the if if both survived to that point they're in their 70s mm-hmm. so they might have just been like we don't we can't live on a ranch anymore we need to go to a home or we need to move to Boca or, you know what I mean? Like anything else. Boca Vista. Yeah. So seriously, like, I don't, I don't know. To me, that part is interesting, but it's not like spooky. I don't know. But so anyways, um, the NIDS team forms then. So, okay. 87, the Myers leave the ranch. 94, Terry and Gwen Sherman will buy the ranch. Mm-hmm. And that's when the weird stuff starts to them almost immediately. Mm-hmm. 95, NIDS forms. 96, the Deseret News has this article about this guy being like, my ranch is too haunted for my own good. And so Bigelow buys it for $200,000. Mm-hmm. 
My ranch is too hot. <laughs> oh, yes. And As far... Again, not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. Yeah, it's not a lot of money. No. Evidently, the only thing... The only thing that seems to have occurred on the ranch are a bunch of kind of random little... Um, little scary-ish events. Mm-hmm. Like nothing huge. There's no, you know, the biggest, I think, event that occurs to the NIDS team is their cameras have lines seemingly cut or kind of pulled out of them or something. Mm-hmm. But nothing, as far as we know, nothing scientifically verifiable comes from the ranch. Nothing really of interest. But while at the ranch, Bigelow will become involved in a scandal with MUFON mm-hmm. known as the Carpenter affair. If you remember the name, John Carpenter from the last episode, we talked about him. Yes. He was MUFON's head of abduction research from yes. 1991 to around the year 2000. So he was working with Bigelow and Stanton Friedman. He kind of knew Bigelow from Linda Moulton. Howe. Um, this guy, you know, just kind of, they ran in the same circles, right? John Schusler, who would become the head of MUFON, um, was on NIDS at this time. So, you know, Bigelow was involved in MUFON to some extent. However, what becomes known due to the good work of people like uh, Jack Brewer over at the UFO trail, so go check out that website, mm-hmm. it's great. What appears to happen in the mid-90s is Bigelow begins to buy case information from John Carpenter mm-hmm. that is supposed to be confidential between abductees and the people performing their therapy sessions. So this becomes known as the Carpenter affair because John Carpenter is the one seemingly or supposedly selling these cases to Bigelow and the NIDS team overall. Which is crazy because it's almost like, again, if you just think about now, sort of the idea of privacy around your own medical records. I mean, this, you know, roughly translated, I would consider a medical record. It's about something that you feel that happened to you that is affecting your mental state, and you're telling it to somebody that I guess is not exactly a doctor, but still has some sort of responsibility to treat it with respect and with some privacy. And it's, you know, again, it's just all data's up for sale. Yeah. So... Supposedly, this part, this part of the story involves – so the way that this supposedly worked was through Carpenter's, um, through Carpenter's work with MUFON, he was performing abductee research. So people that had abductions would give kind of a general uh, statement of what their abduction was about or how it happened. Based on some of MUFON's kind of internal criteria, they would determine that a case was of interest or not. And then from that, Carpenter and his team would investigate those abductions. Supposedly, a hundred well, supposedly, we know this, 140 cases were sold to Bigelow. Yeah. And then its team. Without the consent of those um yeah. without the consent of those yeah. being interviewed. Yeah. So, and these are some quotes actually directly from Carpenter um, in some responses via email to Jack Brewer from the UFO uh, blog. So, or the UFO trail blog. So, uh, quote, again, this is Carpenter speaking, quote, um, 
Bob Bigelow is a low-key, quiet man who has an avid and serious interest in the paranormal for all the right reasons. Because he worked hard for years at real estate and investments, he eventually made enough money to fund projects that would further research, bring answers, and take a much-needed serious scientific and psychological look at the UFO field. All the serious researchers knew him as well as he made a point of connecting with the best ones to see what they needed or what projects he could help with. He funded projects for Bud Hopkins, Stanton Friedman, Linda Moulton Howe, David Jacobs, myself, Dr. John Mack, George Knapp, MUFON, and more. Um, and then he followed this up with a further email saying, um, Bob Bigelow is a kind-hearted, generous individual who avidly sought answers in professional, credible directions. He helped bring researchers together to discuss issues while staying discreetly in the background. He helped fund the historical MIT abduction study conference in Boston in 92. He helped fund the famous Roper poll on how many Americans may have been abducted. This was the poll that NID started out with. This led then to another effort to train mental health professionals in abduction knowledge and therapy skills by way of major professional conferences for mental health professionals only. These were held successfully in New York, Atlanta, L.A., and Chicago, with John Mack, Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, and myself as speakers. Bob wanted all the best for quality research and proper treatment of abductees. I first met Bob when he tagged along with Linda Moulton Howe as she visited Southwest, Southwest Missouri to work with me on several interesting abduction cases. Her subsequent film production became the pilot special that evolved into the long-running show, Sightings. Bob said he was impressed with my hypnotherapy skills and professionalism. He later on flew me to Las Vegas, Tucson, Vancouver Island, and Nevada to help abduction cases he had become aware of. He also helped fund the investigation in New Mexico of Gerald Andresen's claims with myself and Staten Friedman. Eventually, Bob created the NIDS team in Las Vegas so the top scientists in other fields of professional expertise could study paranormal events. We're going to skip over this stuff because mm -hmm. it's not important. But so he says they would con secretly convene once a month and study various cases and projects. I had the wonderful opportunity to give a presentation on abductions to this incredible panel of experts. Then he says, based on some of that background on Bigelow, I want to clarify some of this other stuff. So he says, uh, he, meaning Bigelow, wanted some of the top professional minds to study abduction data. I agreed to confidently share data from a number of my cases by blacking out names and identifying data to protect my cases while giving top scientists a taste of what is being reported in abduction research. Um, despite rumors on the internet, I never sold my cases. Um, <laughs> and then he blames his ex-wife for starting that. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. cool. Then he says... Yes, why um, false? Anyways, for the record, all of my 140 plus cases remain complete, intact, and unchanged, all in my possession. If anybody cares to drop by my house just to be certain. Bob Bigelow only reimbursed me for my time and costs to work on selecting, preparing, and sending data. Hmm. Um, however, I have heard that most of it never got reviewed and probably sits in some closet as priorities and more exciting projects came along. Yeah, um, he just collected so, it. Anyways, am... that's the end of that. But um... Again, he collected it. Like, he just is low-key, right? I mean, if you listen to, to Carpenter, he's just low-key. He's not, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a strong arm in any of this. It was all for the greater good. But what it ends up with is, like, this information is gone, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, again, it's private information, 
And it's pretty much now under, it's with one person. It sure is. See? Yeah, man. And so that's what happens, right? Um, yeah. So what ends up happening then is, uh, so what ends up happening is that really nothing else of interest really happens with NIDS. And actually we end up getting stories from people that were supposedly working in NIDS um, coming out after the fact. So NIDS will eventually, uh, NIDS will eventually go under in uh, 2004. Mm-hmm. NIDS become shuttered. However, mm-hmm. Bigelow's, uh, Bigelow's time at the ranch doesn't stop there. Bigelow still owns the ranch from 2004. 2005 Hunt for the Skinwalker comes out, which is considered, you know, the the kind of big story there yep. on the ranch itself. It kind of really sets the stage for things. Um, and that that book gets a tremendous amount of play. And it's written by Colm Kelleher and George Knapp. Um, you know, so again, it's it's covered by many other podcasts. Go take a listen. The important point there, though, is that, again, this is a story that they want. This is a story that Bigelow wants to come out. Yeah. They would not have published this book without his express no. permission. No, no. Um, I especially given the NDAs. Wholeheartedly the truth. Yes. Especially given the NDAs. Well, I think that's just wholeheartedly the truth. That that's that is that is the story that that is the most palatable that has come out. That's the that's what he wants out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 2004 nids ends, but 2007. Bigelow is given an interesting, uh, an interesting ask, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. for a military official to come check out the ranch, <laughs> and that is going to be the sort of start of what we today know as a tip. Nids becomes a tip. And that's what we're going to get into next episode. And it's the same story again. It's the same people. So get ready for it, people. But until then, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween! Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, Please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? 
That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.